You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast in association with Choose Health, and this is session 36. Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. I'm Jack Chu. Find me on Twitter at choose underscore health and follow us at TPM podcast. Uh, also on Facebook, the Physio Matters podcast. Going to do something very rare for me and try and keep this intro brief. We've got a long episode ahead and it's full of goodness. One thing I wanted to mention um, is that thank you so much to those that are supporting us on Patreon and to the companies that are supporting us, um, such as Remedy Physio and the ATOCP, who sponsored our last episode, which was It's Gone Down a Storm with Toby Smith, incredible man, incredible organisation and incredibly supportive. So uh, how many times can I say the word incredibly in one sentence? But I hope you guys can hopefully appreciate uh, just how much that means to us. And on Patreon, we're doing all sorts of exclusive stuff. And and it's made us think, if if we hit our next target, then I will seriously um, start to look at how we can reach out and use this format to go towards public-facing information, as well as reaching out to other of our colleagues in, the, in sort of the medical fields and try and help get, get this sort of critical reasoning through to wider audiences. So we'll look at... We might we might reach out and do more broadcasts. We might do uh, aim it at different audiences. Do some marketing. Get a studio. Do some live stuff. We're we're open to ideas, but certainly if the if the Patreon thing keeps ticking over, then if we hit another target, then uh, we'll we'll seriously consider branching out. So if you like what we're doing, please do con- do think about supporting us because uh, it will help us to reach different frontiers and hopefully make your job easier as well and that's the whole point this is this is all about trying to help help life in the frontline clinician and if you think it is doing if it's helping you if it's helping your team and you think it can help others then by supporting us we'll we'll we promise to stay true to you and true to our message so that's what i wanted to say this month um just want to introduce this this incredible interview i was such an absolute pleasure to to chat to this lady second time i've talked to her nina schmid um and please do visit our interview which will be on i think it's on the macp soundcloud i'll, I'll link to it in the description um which touches on some of this stuff we, we spoke before i thought 2016 but it was in the promo stuff so it was like two years ago and uh, it really stuck in my mind and i remember thinking i've got to watch this lady at glasgow and i did and i thought i've got to speak to this lady at glasgow and then i missed her um as i mentioned at the start of this interview which she managed to stay away from me but we cut we got together for this podcast and uh, hopefully it's an interesting conversation it certainly was for me she's a lovely lady and, and very generous with her time and very generous with what she shares and the information that she does she comes at research through a with with a critical mind and, and also from a from a clinical queries you know she she's clearly bumped into certain frustrations in the clinic and, and encountered pathologies and things that, that just don't sit well uh, with what was then thought of as accepted knowns um, that, that existed. She wanted to challenge that. She has done. She continues to. And what more can we want from our fellow colleagues? So I bring you Anina Schmid. Okay, so I'm delighted to be joined on Skype this time um, for another episode of Physio Matters with Anina Schmid. This is the second time we've chatted. Our first time was ahead of IFOMP 2016, so it was a couple of years ago, um, in which we discussed ahead of the keynote lecture that Nina then 
delivered in Glasgow, and then we managed to. Well, I think shrewdly, Nina managed to avoid me throughout the <laughs> throughout the conference, and we've never actually met in person. So I'm delighted that she'll join me again for a further chat into entrapment neuropathy. It really was a it was a real game changer at IFOMT and really got some chins wagging. And so I'd love to add some layers to that for those that weren't there, and even those that were there clearly had 101 questions after it. So we're going to try and cover some ground, but before we do, if you, I'd like to introduce Nina to introduce herself better than I can. So uh, welcome, Nina. Well, thank you so much, and I, I think you have it. You have it obviously right. I try to avoid you because I just have that idea that having a screen between of us uh, gives a bit of security. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a shame we didn't we didn't catch up at iPhone, but I'm sure we will have another chance somewhere else. But I'm excited about today, so hopefully we'll get some um, um, good ideas and a good exchange. Well, let's hope so. Yeah, I think I think it, by the time we get to sort of, if we ever do three Skype interviews and no face-to-face interviews, then I think that that'll start to get suspicious, won't it? But let's let's just put it down to chance, and uh, yeah, I'll pass all cross soon. Um, so, firstly, what if you can tell me a little bit about your story so far then if you don't mind i mean we did cover it a little bit and i encourage listeners to listen to um iphone the the iphone pre-podcast and stuff but but generally it's useful just to touch on your background and what brought you to to where you are now absolutely well i'm I'm a physiotherapist obviously at heart and still am although i'm i'm currently um, mainly a researcher at the Nuffield Department for Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford. And I'm an associate professor having a small group here looking at um, entrapment neuropathies in specific, but also neuropathic pain. And I'm interested in the pathomechanisms of neuropathic pain and how could we potentially influence it in, in and improve management of our patients. Um, I, I had this interest for quite quite a few years actually it was a bit sad to say but um, I, I got stuck into it almost immediately after my undergraduate training which I had in Switzerland um, and um, yeah kind of didn't, didn't let me go I, I, I guess there were a few people along the way that really really influenced me um, with, who I would like to acknowledge as well that was certainly uh, for example Max Zussman um, in Perth during my master's program who really got me interested in pain physiology and then during my PhD it was certainly Elspeth McLaughlin who is a physiologist um, um, uh, working a lot with animal models who, who really got me started on all the kind of more basic science um, way of thinking so yeah, and, and here I am still doing research in this area I'm, I'm also still seeing patients regularly so I have a, I'm working private practice um, about six, seven hours a week um, where I see patients with a lot of different problems, but certainly quite many with um, kind of radiating neck arm or, or back arm problems. Yeah, I mean, if you if you see a general caseload, you'll always bump into those sorts of things, won't you? They're, they're quite Absolutely. complex issues to treat and often very disabling problems for people. So um, I imagine that more questions will emerge than answers that's the nature of these sorts of chats but certainly if we can start to move in the right direction that will help a great many people 
obviously still a lot to learn. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and um, kind of summarize a bit where we are at, but we are certainly nowhere near close to understanding because obviously otherwise I should pack up my bags here. Absolutely. <laughs> keeps, us all, keeps us all sharp, doesn't it? As is, as is science, we will always unveil new frontiers, won't we? So let's, uh, let's try and make sure we, we get, get that through straight away. This is as, as we stand where we are rather than the answers, isn't it? That's a great shout. Um, so I'm going to start with what on the surface might seem a simple question, but I promise I know it's not an easy one. But what is entrapment neuropathy in terms of its definition? Yeah, well, entrapment neuropathy is, I would define it as an irritation of peripheral nerves, usually where they travel through narrow anatomical spaces. And as the word entrapment already says, most commonly this is caused by an actual compression on the nerves, but it can also be due to direct inflammatory mechanisms. For example, a lot of people argue that uh, um, a cervical radiculopathy or lumbar radiculopathy can be a direct inflammatory um, injury to the nerve. Um, then some people also say that stretch-related nerve problems might fall into the category of, of entrapment neuropathies. And whereas I do not, not necessarily agree, because obviously entrapment is not a stretch by definition, um, I certainly agree that stretch-related nerve problems have a very similar pathomechanism. It might be treated quite similarly. Um, to some of the other entrapment neuropathies that I will be talking about. But really what I will be talking about, my area is, is more compression-related entrapment neuropathies or direct inflammatory um, um, irritations of peripheral nerves. Okay, and so if we just try and rattle off a few common sites then, a few have been mentioned already, but what, what sort of, just to give people an idea of what sort of pathologies and then we'll go on to presentations we might be describing when we consider entrapment neuropathy as an academic term. Absolutely. So, so entrapment neuropathies are obviously quite common. It's in fact, interestingly, it's, it's the most common cause for neuropathic pain. It's much more common than diabetic neuropathy, for example. And, and the, the most common cause of entrapment neuropathies or, or, or diagnosis is, is carpal tunnel syndrome, obviously. About 3 to 6% of the general population has it. Um, it's very, very common, and it's also the model that we are using in our research to study entrapment neuropathies, simply because it, it gives great accessibility um, to the nerve and, and, and is very common, which makes life easy for a researcher. <laughs> then other conditions are cubital tunnel syndrome, then cervical lumbar radiculopathies. Um, they're a bit more controversial entrapment neuropathies like tarsal tunnel syndrome, Guillaume's canal, then the arcot von Froese with the posterior interosseous nerve, part of the radial nerve in the forearm. And then probably very controversial entrapment neuropathies, such as, for example, piriformis syndrome and, and, and these kind of things. So it is quite a wide area, really, of, of um, places where a nerve can potentially um, be affected. And so uh, how do these typically present then? Um, and, and we don't necessarily need to map them onto a broad case study just yet in conversation, although I, I imagine we might go there. But just generally speaking, how might someone present in clinic uh, that would, would indicate this? Yeah, and this is really where it gets a bit tricky because actually the pain presentation or the symptoms presentation as such is very diverse. Broadly speaking, people can present with anything between a full-on neuropathic pain 
kind of presentation to a complete nociceptive pain pattern. And then all the kind of subtleties in between, a mixed kind of pattern between neuropathic and nociceptive um, symptoms. And by those so, things you mean your, tip, your, your, your sort of typical sin factor variables, your AGs, your eases that you'd expect in those pain states? You mean the, the sort of textbook classics, I assume you mean it? Yes, exactly. So for, for example, for a neuropathic, if, if somebody has a classic neuropathic descriptor, he would say it's burning, it's the paresthesia, like pins and needles and tingling. They will have numbness. They might have cold pain, electric shock, shooting pain, sure. and yeah. itching, which actually gets forgotten quite often, which is quite commonly a, a sign for neuropathic problems as yeah. well. Um, whereas somebody who has a nociceptive pain presentation is more like, you know, like an aching, a bit, bit of a dull discomfort, um, these kind of problems. And quite often they coexist. I mean, if, if, you, sure. if you think about a patient with cervical radiculopathy, he might well have burning uh, sensations and pins and needles down his arm, which sound very neuropathic. But then in the neck, he has on top of that a dull ache, which is very nociceptive. And if you operate the nerve root, the nerve-related pain might disappear. But the nociceptive pain in the spine quite often persists because it is, it is, it's another mechanism. Sure. And quite often also if these patients um, have, have certain pain medication that are specific for nociceptive pain, for example, they don't do anything at all for that more neuropathic kind of component. So it's it's very common that these patients have a mixed kind of pain pattern. Yeah, and so the symptoms are presenting in, in varied ways. Uh, not This is another uh, thing that I understand as being very varied is the location of presentation as well. They d we, we, we can almost laugh now at the thoughts of textbook definitions of the mapping dermatomes and the like. So... Uh, not only the symptom presentation varied, also the location can be quite varied too, I understand. Absolutely, and especially about what I differentiate, this is quite different for loss of function problems or gain of function. So gain of function, I mean like too much activity in the nervous system, which, for example, pain, tingling, etc., falls into. Th these kind of gain of function symptoms and signs very often do not follow a true anatomical borders and they are not usually not in a dermatomal pattern, and quite often they don't follow the peripheral innervation pattern as well. Um, whereas more the loss of function, so if they have true heart neurological signs such as numbness, um, muscle deficit, muscle weakness or, or reflex um, weakening, these quite often do actually follow anatomical boundaries. Um, so it's quite important that if we examine these patients that we do differentiate between gain and loss of function symptoms and signs. Mm -hmm. No, that's a, that's a great point and, and brings us nicely on to um, a, a very difficult and grey area, uh, both academically and clinically, about diagnostic criteria, about how we come to identify these. So we're starting to pick up on some pictures on the presentation. Um, diagnostically then, there's been some controversy over the years, and, and I know your team have been unveiling uh, some, of the, some of the answers for why we might have been failing uh, to understand this completely with regards to these sort of small fiber, large fiber differences. So if you can just maybe muse on that a little bit as to how it, why it's diagnostically difficult to identify, and if there are any criteria that you've now, that you now use. 
Absolutely. Now, I can probably first tell you how, how I go about diagnosing these kind of problems and, and then I can um, highlight a bit why do I do it that way and what, what I'm looking for and how do I interpret or not interpret certain tests. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so let's say at, at a patient, like a pre patient presentation with radiating neck arm pain, for example. So it could well be what I call a radiculopathy um, with, with frank neurological signs, so they have loss of function. It could be radicular pain, which um, doesn't show any hard neurological signs, so no loss of function, but they have gain of function and neural mechanosensitivity. And the third pattern would be pure somatic pain, so that means they have gain of function, but the gain of function is not neural mechanosensitivity, but it's gain of function in muscle, joints, etc. Um, so I, I basically try and differentiate these three different patterns. And the way I do it is I always, always will first do, after a thorough subjective examination, I will first do a neurological examination, um, which is not only important for me diagnostically, but it will also tell me how, how whether I potentially have some contraindication or where I have to be careful for my um, few further assessment. So in the neurological examination, I test four different things in a standard way. I do test um, sensation, and sensation I test with the standard light touch, which I guess all of us do. But I always, always also include pinprick. Um, and pinprick I include because it tests the small fiber population, which we just, without even thinking, have neglected really over the past um decades in neurological testing. So I test sensation with light touch and pinprick. And then I do muscle strength testing and reflex testing, um, for, which also test the large motor fibers. If a patient has a positive neurological examination, so they have any of these, in fact, quite often they don't have the full picture. So you, you, you shouldn't look for numbness and reflex and muscle changes, quite often it can be a pure motor problem, for example, or a pure sensory problem. Um, so if I find any hard neurological signs or loss of function, then I would classify this patient um, as, as a proper radiculopathy, um, if, if obviously the problem is in the neck. Um, if, however, they have complete normal neurological examination, um, it might then be that they have radicular pain or they have somatic pain. And to differentiate those two, I then use um, tests for neural mechanosensitivity, which is, for example, for the upper limb can be an upper limb neurodynamic test. But also, quite often, I do nerve palpation. Um, very, very often, I integrate those tests for neural mechanosensitivity into my active examinations. So for example, if I do shoulder range of move, movement, um, I, I differentiate the neural system while I'm doing abduction, for shoulder abduction, for example. And so just to, just to hover on that a second, if you don't mind, with, mm -hmm. with the, both the neurodynamic testing, which I think we'll probably discuss a little more thoroughly because you've got some recent work that's come out, which is really interesting on that, but also the nerve palpation, both strong false positive rates in normal patients sometimes you know you can get some sort of tenderness over those interfaces and also positive testing where people just tend to be quite uh, irritable to those things even though they don't have classic symptoms if you were testing each other in clinic for example as matter of practice so how, how might we 
try to take those things with a pinch of salt and how strongly positive would you need a test to be for it to really inform your reasoning? Absolutely, that's a good question. So for, I think it's much easier to start with the neurodynamic tests um, because they're actually quite um, good criteria that are now commonly accepted and it is, um, they come from a paper by um, Bopni, um, it's the validity of, of um, those neurodynamic tests. Um, uh, in this paper, he describes very clearly what we should use um, to determine whether a test is positive or negative. So for a test to be positive, it is not enough that we find a deficit in range of motion compared to the other side. That is not a, a strong enough criterion. Um, what we are really looking for is to have at least partial symptom reproduction and um, it needs to be structurally differentiated away from where these symptoms are reproduced. So for example, if we have a patient with radiating arm pain and he gets pain upon the upper limb neurodynamic test for the median nerve in, in, in the hand, then we can differentiate over the neck. If that changes the symptoms that he has, and that are par at least partially his symptoms, that is when we would classify a test as positive. And you know, to be honest, in the literature, there is a lot of different criteria, unfortunately, that have been used to um, say the, ne the, the, the neurodynamic tests are positive or are not positive. But clearly, range of motion or symptom reproduction by themselves are not enough to say a, a neurodynamic test is positive. Then on the other hand, we have also the problem that we have um, false negative ones, and I think that is actually e e even worse than the false positive ones, to be honest. Um, the false negative ones are those patients, um, for example, with, with the carpal tunnel syndrome, and where we clearly know they have a nerve-related problem because we test them electrophysiologically, for example, so they, they have a clear diagnosed nerve problem. And we, when we do upper limb neurodynamic tests for the median nerve in those patients, we do find that a substantial proportion of these patients have, in fact, completely normal neurodynamic tests, even though they, they have a clear nerve problem. Um, so that means we have to be really careful in interpreting a negative neurodynamic test. And we recently did a study, my student did, um, Larissa Vazelia. Um, what she did is that she, she used exactly carpal tunnel syndrome as a model system. She subgrouped the patients into those with positive and those with negative neurodynamic tests and then looked at um, nerve fiber dysfunction using quantitative sensory testing. And when she did that, we found something quite intriguing. In fact, we found that the only parameter that differentiated those with positive from those with negative neurodynamic tests was um, a, a deficit in worm detection. And worm detection is mediated by the small fiber population. Now, intriguingly, it was those patients who actually had um, had negative neurodynamic tests, so normal neurodynamic tests, who, who in fact ha had a higher deficit of um, feeling with those small, with these small fibers. And we are not the first ones um, to show that, in fact, those patients um, who have a, a more severe nerve dysfunction have, in fact, normal neurodynamic tests. 
there's an elegant study by, by Benjamin Boyd from the States where he looked at patients with diabetic neuropathies and he found exactly the same thing, that those patients who have a more severe diabetic neuropathy are the ones that are less neurally mechanosensitive. So what does it mean for me and what I think it should mean for us in clinics is that if we have, in fact, patients who have loss of function, so in the, in the proper neurological examination, we have findings, hard neurological signs, I find it that it is not easy to interpret neural mechanosensitivity tests. And that is the exact reason why I will always do the neuro neurological examination before doing tests for neural mechanosensitivity. Right. Because if I then have a patient, for example, that has... Um, reflex changes and, and changes in sensation, I am very careful how I rate a, a, a negative neurodynamic test because that test might in fact be a false negative one. Right, so there's a real rationale for the order in which you're doing things. Yeah. That makes sense. And just to, just to then, uh, you've just reminded me to just drop back onto the um, sensation testing. And so when someone's, I know when I'm in clinic doing a, a, a what I consider a full neuro, there is uh, there is then uh, a bit of ambiguity over how full is full, and every every clinician has a, a different style and way of doing these things. Especially yep. when it comes to sensation, which you, you're describing it quite rightly, a very important part of it. It's the easiest thing to sort of cheat on. I think that people would just <laughs> sort of, oh, how undressed do I get the patient, or or how, do, is this light touch, deep touch, hot, cold, sharp, blunt? It, it, it could be a full assessment in a, in a sense that it'd take up almost too much of a clinician's time yeah. but it's yeah. but it is in these patients it's incredibly important so let's try and hover over what are the most important ones of them or am I trying to cop out too much and it needs to be all of the above yeah 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 I completely agree with you it is one where even I myself catch myself sometimes thinking oh she'll go quickly it doesn't sound like it anyway but it's <laughs> important that we do it very carefully. So in the standard neurological examination, I will go circularly. So I will definitely not go in a dermatomal pattern because if I follow just the dermatomes, I will miss the peripheral innervation territory. So I will go circularly, circularly around the upper arm, around the lower arm twice, uh, and then I will map out the full hand, for example, or in, in the lower extremity, the full foot, um, because there is where we really find dermatomal or, or peripheral innovation patterns. I do it never, never, ever over... Um, over clothes. No, <laughs> uh, no. I do it always with the patient's eyes closed because visually they can they can compensate a lot. Sure. And the third thing that I think that I see very often done is that I never use my hand to do the light touch, for the simple reason that if I want to test the light touch. I want to test the A-beta fiber population and A-beta fibers um, are, are pure mechanoreceptive uh, mechano fibers. Um, so that means if I use my hand, which might be cold or which might be warm, I might be at the same time testing some of the smaller thermosensitive fibers. And that is certainly not what I want. Um, so I... I, I think we all have to use um, something like a little tissue or like a cotton wool ball to test light touch properly. Okay. Um, I will then always do pinprick as well. And for pinprick, I'm not testing sharp or blunt because blunt I have already tested with the cotton wool. So I, I suggest that we are using only sharp sensations with the pinprick. Uh, and what I'm looking for is whether the patient feels it sharper, which is more gain of function, 
or feels the pinprick as less sharp, which would be more the thing that I'm interested in, in fact, which would be would be a loss of function or a heart neurological sign. And that's relative relative to the other limb. Or... Relative to the other limb, if sure. there is a good control limb that that is okay. healthy yeah. and yeah. normal. If that is not the case, quite often for the upper extremity, the control side that I'm using is over the chest area, okay. which is known to be quite similarly as sensitive as, for example, a hand. Brilliant, right. Um, yeah, so these are the two things that I do for sensation. Um, obviously, what I test with light touch, uh, cotton wool, and with, with pinprick is the A beta and the A delta fibers. And I know that I'm still neglecting, for example, C fibers, um, which I could test um, with some kind of warm stimulations. Warm, However, that is indeed quite time consuming and the tests that we have in simple clinical tests are not incredibly sensitive and specific. Um, so therefore, I rely mostly on the pinprick, knowing that I'm still not testing the full range of nerve fibers. No, that's that's really helpful. Thank you for that. And I think what, what, what the only thing before we move off that is, would you maybe with the pinprick do a style of two-point discrimination or, or how accurately someone is being able to detect the location or is that not something that's really a, a primary concern exactly so the, the, the two-point discrimination is something that is really really interesting and especially in the physio world has gained increasing interest in, in i would say the past five years or so there have been these studies that show that for example, two-point discrimination is impaired in patients with chronic low back pain um, and, and other kind of conditions where we think there's a, a, a quite a strong kind of central nervous system component. And that is rather interesting. However, I would like to point out yet again that if we do two-point discrimination testing, first of all, what are we testing? Usually, we are not testing for sharp sensations, but we are testing for blunt sensations. So we are testing for Merkel cell um, um, function, which, which is large A-beta fiber function. Now, if patients have frank loss of function, so they have a, a decreased innervation density, for example, because they have axonal degeneration, the two-point discrimination will be changed. And it will be changed not necessarily because they have cortical changes, but simply because their innervation density in the skin has changed. So once again, if I have a patient where I have loss of function, so proper kind of loss to light touch, I do not think I can interpret a finding in the two-point discrimination as altered cortical changes because it might simply be a pure peripheral reduction in innervation density. Does, does that kind of make sense? It does, yeah. <laughs> so so whilst it might inform a pattern, it would be a bold move to over-extrapolate that information towards a diagnosis or a suggestion of a specific mechanism. Have I got that right? Absolutely. And especially in the presence of heart neurological signs, I believe we cannot actually interpret it at all. Fantastic. No, that makes sense. Now, as, as far as I can tell, I know I've jumped around a little bit there. We've, we've kind of covered a, a full, what you would consider a full neurological examination of these patients. I then I stopped you as you were maybe about to explain how you would uh, then continue your assessment to, to then get to diagnosis. Exactly. Yeah. So if... Um, <laughs> Let's go back to the, the example like um, nerve or radiating neck arm pain. So, yeah, if, if they have a positive findings on the neurological examination, I would classify them, um, if it's coming from the neck, as a proper radiculopathy, meaning they have proper loss of function. 
Um, however, if they have a normal neurological examination, uh, it might still be radicular pain or somatic pain. And to differentiate the two, I will use tests for neural mechanosensitivity. So for example, like the ones we discussed, um, um, neurodynamic tests or nerve palpation. Um, if these are completely normal, then I would classify somebody as having somatic pain and not actually um, like radicular pain as such. Okay. Okay. Then would you... I think there's a, there's a fine line sometimes when these patients come in, depending on their, their irritability and, and naturally their sens sensitivity to certain movements, how how much would you then bring these patient, patients into their provocative positions or, or how much would you challenge them uh, into those positions? I've heard, I've heard some make a case for the fact that there is very little need to really antagonize the nervous system as much as sometimes physios do and if if so i've heard others also suggest that doing provocative movements and then historically redoing a neuro assessment i mean it's not something i've found myself compelled to do but but again that case gets made sometimes yeah, yeah. So I, I think I make that very much dependent on my neurological examination. And that is why I always do that first. I, in fact, do the neurological examination even before I let a patient do its active movements, because it will give me an idea if somebody has frank neurological signs, I'll be a bit more careful in how far I will really go with, with provocation. So for example, if, if I find a, a patient has radiating arm pain and he has classical reflex loss on, on, uh, on, on the biceps reflex and it fits um, with the C6 um, kind of presentation of numbness as well, I will certainly not do a spurling test because I already have my answer. Um, so I'm really kind of thinking on a case-by-case -case basis on how much do I really need to provoke or do I get enough information from a thorough neurological examination and, and for example, uh, active range of movement with some sensitizing maneuvers for, for neural mechanosensitivity. I personally think I, I very, very seldom need to actually go and hunt hunt the problem or hunt the pain um, very often with, with a careful examination it's not necessary to do like like big provocation tests like um, spurling tests etc okay no I think that and that makes that makes sense I'm just trying to and I think just to, uh, almost the, the devil's advocate in me thinks of patients that almost need to be sold the suggested diagnosis so you could, am I all right in a sense to make a case for patients that come in and say every time I look up <laughs> I get I get raging symptoms down my arm they don't take much persuading for you to explain as to some of the mechanisms behind that but if someone's got more subtle signs or they've not been able to draw those lines between it themselves there's almost a case I find for a Sperling's test to help to elaborate the diagnosis to get that understanding and that buy-in from a patient is that is that is that sort of a, a window in which it's it's fair? Yeah, I I guess that could be a fair comment. You you use it more like an education kind of to the patient that is showing that you can provoke something over his neck. Um, I I believe if if I have um, a neurological examination that is positive, so I have loss of function. I would still not do a spurling test because I basically don't want to stress that nervous system unnecessarily. Um, 
I do spurling tests sometimes if I'm hunting the pain. So if I really can't reproduce anything, if, if the, the neurological examination is completely normal and I still think the cervical spine might have a contribution, then I certainly will do a spurling test, for example, if I can't provoke it any other way. But I, I would think it's, it's the minority of my patients where I indeed have, have to go as far as, as going yeah, and don't do it for the sake of it. Then is is a, an absolutely fair line in the sand. No, that 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 makes sense. Now, I think it'd be well worth just hovering on the, the what we've come to understand is going on at the interface with these pathologies because we've started to. I don't think it's fair for us to sort of scratch on the the surface of these large fiber small fiber discussion. I think it, I I personally would find it really interesting to get an update from you as to what's going on with the the nerves at these interfaces in which compression seems to be making a, a a difference to the to the neural tissues and the and the nerve cells and the inflammatory situation so what what's sort of the best way of summarizing a, an understanding for that absolutely absolutely and i believe here we have made quite a lot of advances in the past decade because quite often entrapment neuropathies at least in the physio world have been seen as a quite a biomechanical problem so it basically leads the, the pressure on a nerve leads to a biomechanical change, meaning maybe maybe some kind of um, fibrotic changes or pure restriction of movement of, of the peripheral nerves. And, and indeed, you know, if you look at the literature, um, the nerve biomechanics and the gliding ability of the nerve compared to its surrounding tissues is, is certainly restricted in patients with entrapment neuropathies. However, um, I think we have moved away from thinking purely biomechanically quite, quite several years ago. Um, um, and, and we, in fact, even know that, you know, if we treat those patients, the biomechanics actually doesn't change. You know, you have to ask yourself, there yeah. were so many people showing the biomechanics. And I know they have been doing studies to look at, does the biomechanics change? And nothing has been published. So it makes you wonder. Um, cer certainly, I would think it doesn't change, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's it. It just doesn't stand up to even the most basic reverse causality, does it? You, as soon as you then think, who have I helped and what's the difference? Exactly. You haven't you have, the things you haven't changed yet, the symptoms have, should should raise some eyebrows shouldn't it so no that that, that makes sense now that so biomechanically it's about just uh, just to linger on that i know we've talked about this briefly before but the um it's a biomechanical term though isn't it entrapment it is, yeah. is it and then so that that history does linger at least in its terminology and is is that is that problematic or are most clinicians uh, sort of recognizing that there's something more to it than just something getting stuck i believe certainly it is uh, it is commonly accepted or it gets much more commonly accepted now that it is not just biomechanically stuck um, in an entrapment neuropathy. I, I agree, you know, that terminology can be tricky and we should be careful how we use it. But I sometimes wonder as well, is it worthwhile spending hours and hours and hours trying to change terminology and coming <laughs> to better words, etc. I, I personally just don't have the time to do that. I believe if everybody talks about the same thing and if we read the new literature and we understand that entrapment neuropathies are not just pure biomechanical problems, then I'm quite happy to use that term, um, entrapment neuropathy. Sure. Yeah, it's the it's the meaning that makes the difference, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's that that's it's an age-old discussion far outside of just physiotherapy, isn't it? About do should we police language or should we like uh, rehabilitate the the wording and the semantics and things? And and, yeah. and I agree, I agree with you. I think we've got more important things to be doing than to uh, trying to overhaul uh, a, a term such as that. So especially when it's been so well utilized in in the literature, because well, you know, the thing is 
isn't it? And and sometimes I wonder as well, you know, if we if we want to talk outside physiotherapy, we have to use certain terms that are commonly used outside physiotherapy as well. And entrapment neuropathy is commonly accepted by, uh, by neurologists, rheumatologists, etc. So if we all of a sudden come up with a different term, I think life just gets really difficult. <laughs> no, I <laughs> completely agree. I mean, I think we'll probably start to touch on it because I think I understand some reasonably strong opinions of yours about the, the fact that if we if we become too vague um so you just end up with this non-specific arm pain uh that becomes uh becomes too vague too wishy-washy that it helps literally no one yes absolutely so i'm sure we'll i reckon we'll get there uh, so i won't rush that part of the conversation um so sorry we're going to start talking about um i've I've managed to deviate as again i apologize for that but the biomechanics um, we've moved on from and yes and now I think we're, we're just... accepted it is it is yeah. a component but it might not be the one that sure. we actually treat when we treat um, the problem um, but what we certainly know is that a lot of these patients um, from from pressure for example on those nerves get get as a first symptom get ischem- ischemic kind of problems and these are the classical problems you know if you, if you think about a patient with carpal tunnel syndrome and they get um, tingling when they for example are in a static position holding the steering wheel holding a phone they shake their hand and immediately their symptoms disappear so that is a classic example of an ischemic problem um, uh, meaning that the microcirculation within the nerve is reduced and we actually know that this happens um, quite quickly um, that because the nerve is, 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 is a structure that needs a lot of blood supply um, um, it, it, it is amongst others also responsible quite often for the kind of night pain that these patients have um, specifically again in carpal tunnel syndrome um, patients get the night tingling they wake up they let the, the hand hang outside of the bed so basically increasing the pressure uh, of the blood flow into the hand and the symptoms get better um, so a lot of these patients in very early stages have ischemic problems very often, though, um, if a nerve is exposed to ischemia over a long period of time, what will eventually happen is that the Schwann cells will become very unhappy. And the Schwann cells are the cells within the nervous system that um, form myelin. And if the Schwann cells are unhappy, what they will do is that they will not form myelin um, as strongly as they have, and they will actually even start um, phagocytosing their own myelin. So we eventually start to have a demyelination of, of that nerve. And we know that this happens in entrapment neuropathies, for example, in carpal tunnel syndrome, if, if um, we know that from kind of post-mortem examinations uh, in histology. But we also know that if we do a diffusion imaging um, where we can actually visualize myelination, and um, when, when doing that, we know that... Um, the values of these diffusion image, imagings are, are reduced. So we know there is demyelination in, in entrapment neuropathies. Now, if there is demyelination, there is always the debris of, of this myelin. And what happens with this debris um, is that it will be gobbled up by some immune cells, for example, macrophages. And we know that um, immune cells are very present um, in very mild nerve compressions, um, we know that from the animal models that we have done, um, where macrophages get recruited to the lesion site and they start eating up the myelin debris. Um, it's not just the macrophages, we also know now that um, it's T cells that get activated, for example, as well, and the Schwann cells get further activated, and all of these cells 
have, have an important immune competent function, um, meaning that they can secrete certain inflammatory mediators. And if axons are exposed to, inflammatory, to an inflammatory environment, what they will do is that they will lower the firing threshold. And by doing so, um, that means that they fire like more spontaneously, potentially, more strongly, and are activated much more easily. And if that happens in a nociceptive fiber, that might eventually um, translate into pain if it reaches um, the somatosensory cortex. So inflammatory mechanisms can well explain, for example, night symptoms as well. Um, but it can explain um, hypersensitivity of nerves on, upon palpation. It can explain some spontaneous kind of pains that these patients have, like um, sometimes electric shock-like symptoms or kind of constant burning pain. is quite a typical kind of um, symptom that is commonly linked to um, neuroinflammation. Um, so I need to, I, I, sorry, just to just to interject, because if I don't ask these questions now, I will forget them as I try and concentrate on the rest of it, because I need to brush up on my neurophysiology for sure. So forgive me if these questions are ignorant, but the, the demyelination that you're describing, or, or certainly the, the neuroinflammatory changes, is that all within, because we know that the nervous system has its own inflammatory mediators, sort of independent of the systemic um, inflammatory markers. Is that, is that just Inter, intraneural that you're describing or does that start to um, influence other other features so that then I'm just sort of thinking could they then at the carpal tunnel we've got that going on within the nerves uh, as we at the interface but also does that then could that then create a more traditional shall we call it inflammatory response in and around that area as well which could increase the swelling pressure or well for want of a better term swelling pressure and then actually perpetuate a slight increase in the compressive forces around there as the pressure is being taken up or am i am i thinking too far afield from that? Uh, no, these are very very good question i can answer probably first from an animal perspective because this is very difficult to examine in in humans so if you do the animal model where we induce a mild, mild nerve compression in, in rats, we certainly see an infiltration of resident immune cells, so from within the nervous system, but also we see a recruitment from immune cells from the blood as well. Um, however, this immune inflammation is rather low grade, and that is why if you take blood in those patients, you will never pick that up. Because systemically, it is such a low inflammation that you will not pick it up. Um, however, um, the inflammation does not remain locally within the nerve. It also is within the epineurium, for example. So we, we see a lot of macrophage activation in the connective tissue right. of the nerve itself, which is commonly attributed to that kind of neural mechanosensitivity to, on palpation of a nerve, for example. Okay. Um, and we also know that um, you know the pressure in the tunnel, for example, in carpal tunnel patients is higher and the question is a bit why is it higher and obviously the, the pressure there is higher not only on the nerve but also on the tendons etc and there is certainly some extra neural edema happening we don't know exactly how all these mechanisms work at the moment um, but there is certainly also some kind of reaction to other tissues in intraneuropathies it, it doesn't necessarily only affect the nerve itself 
Right, right. No, that makes sense. So I, I'm glad it it wasn't my my question wasn't as ignorant as I thought it might be. A, a second one is one of the most difficult questions I've been asked recently by a colleague, um, where I was really scratching my head. It, it, it took me down a really interesting path of reading, and I, I can't. I admit I couldn't get to anywhere near what seemed like an answer. But why is it that some people? Why why do you feel that some people respond differently to compressive forces than others? So why is this process that you've just described um, happening in some at, at levels of force that other people seem to tolerate, and then their nerve their nerves don't? Well, I, I know it's a crude term, but they don't break down. They they seem to do much better at that interface than others. Why do you feel that is? And if I knew that, I think I would win the Nobel Prize in the next <laughs> year. So. so it wasn't just it wasn't just me being stumped by that then. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is this is the really interesting thing. Not only in entrapment neuropathies, in fact, in the whole in the whole area of pain and chronic pain. Why do some people develop chronic pain from maybe even a similar kind of you know low back pain problem, and others have absolutely nothing like that and that kind of why are some patients more resilient than others we don't understand that fully we believe or, or, or researchers believe there might well be a strong genetic component to that and and we are for example currently doing a big genome-wide association study looking at genetic factors potentially influencing um, um, hypersensitivity to to painful stimuli but this, we are still quite far away from understanding the genetics and how it might um, interact exactly. But there's certainly growing evidence base that genetics plays a big role. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other factors as well. We know that the psychological factors, emotional factors definitely can interfere with pain experience, not necessarily with the actual primary injury as such, but with, with how much pain, for example, is being perceived in a seemingly similar injury. And me personally, looking at the immune system as well, we know that the immune system is very different in different people. Yeah. So if you have a flu, you react completely different to that flu, not just because you're a man, <laughs> but um, <laughs> your immune system is very different um, than my immune system. Um, so we believe that the 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 way the immune system works so differently in different people might well explain why an immune reaction might be potentiated in some patients, um, whereas other patients have, have quite a low-grade kind of immune reaction that might not even kind of lead to a lot of um, kind of nociceptive input at all. So we believe that, believe that this kind of intrinsic kind of differences between um, patients definitely can explain why some patients get get a huge amount of pain from a seemingly small entrapment neuropathy, whereas others get no symptoms at all, really. Yeah, and I think that's that's certainly where I'm more comfortable answering that question, I think, is why, why the symptoms differ or, or the presentation differs in its intensity independent of the actual lesion. I hadn't then taken it that step further that you just did, which was to say not only would that influence the symptom presentation, but could that then influence the way in which the body responds to the uh, the actual interface site and, and why some people would have that breakdown more than others. I, I probably hadn't taken it that step further, but of course these systems aren't 
independent of each other and uh, it, it's a complex thing so yeah so we're not we're not quite on the cusp of nobel peace peace prize sorry nobel prize um but but that that is a really really interesting and certainly a compelling answer at the, as it stands so no thanks for that um so so to, to take it to, to, to again i dragged you away with those questions but you were then go i imagine going to explain a little bit about what we then understand about the the behavior and how that how the nerve then well we could probably take it towards recovery unless you had anything further you wanted to add to what happens at the at the nerve site yeah exactly so so one, one thing that i um didn't mention as yet obviously if we have this kind of inflammatory reaction what eventually might happen and there might be several reasons but one of them can be inflammation is that eventually you will get axon degeneration and um, if you obviously have axon degeneration, prognosis is, is not as good anymore, um, sim simply because this regeneration of myelin is much, much quicker than regeneration of, of, of axons and um, target re-innovation is quite difficult, quite often. So axon degeneration, obviously, um, you will have in a patient that has a carpal tunnel syndrome and you can see like proper atrophy of the TNR muscles. That is certainly axon degeneration. Um, and and um, yeah, axon degeneration would obviously lead to more kind of loss of function symptoms. So can be numbness, can be muscle weakness, reflex changes. Um, but it will certainly, again... <laughs> contribute to that inflammatory reaction and kind of close that vicious circle you know if, if you have axon debris it needs to be transported away and who does it if not the immune cells so yeah it's, it's a bit of a vicious circle um, that happens um, not only locally um, but we also know that these inflammatory changes for example start to extend beyond the lesion side for example into the dorsal root ganglia where the sensory cell bodies are if it is a kind of frank nerve injury, it might affect spinal cord immune cells as well, or at higher centers such as in the thalamus um, or, 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 or cortical areas as well. How quickly does the prognosis sort of shift? If I was to try and, I know it's very variable, but just mapping a time frame onto this. So if there was some compression going on, how quickly could that turn sour, so to speak, in, in, a, in a person that presents where, because the the speed of speed of action is quite an important element within this and then so i'm just sort of wondering if the these axonal changes as you've just described how quickly might that prognosis go from something that's a good one to, to poor yeah that, that is again quite a difficult one personally because there's, there's actually not good evidence on prognostic factors at all okay um, not because they mainly because the studies have been done are a few are not very good ones um, but from a pathomechanistic point of view I would say it hugely depends on the extent of compression and on the speed of the development of neurological heart signs so if a patient has a very sudden occurring let's say drop foot that then you certainly have to react um, if somebody has had a drop foot and it has been there for two, three years already, that doesn't mean I immediately have to send him on for surgery because he obviously had that for so much time already. And the prognosis probably will be rather poor anyway um, in terms of motor recovery. Um, so it probably depends a bit on the extent of the compression and the duration of the compression and has to really be looked at quite, um, you know, quite individually in each patient. 
Are we right to err on the side of conservative when the frank loss is improving? So typically that would be, it's not just about the state of, say, weakness, it's about the the trajectory of that weakness. So if you had, um, if you were going through and improving, say, a foot drop was, was moving in the right direction as time passed, are we right to to still try to, to work out and manage that? Or is it something that we really should still be escalating things through diagnostically to make sure that that could be decompressed promptly? You're absolutely right. If you, not, not self, these kind of conditions are quite often self-limiting actually in natural history. So absolutely, this is why it is so important to do a proper neurological examination at the start and then follow it up very closely. If I find heart neurological signs, each time the patient comes back, I, I will check them again. Oh, one thing I wanted to say as well, you're right, it's quite easy for muscle function, right? Because we quantify that. However, usually in a sensory examination, we are quite happy to just say he has reduced sensation. I find that really stunning because honestly, if we examine a shoulder patient, um, we would never be happy to say he has restricted glenohumeral motion, right? We would say he has restricted glenohumeral motion by 20 degrees. Makes sense. Um, but somehow, in sensory testing, we are quite happy to just say, uh, reduce sensation. But by how much is it actually reduced? So we have to quantify it so that if in the progress of this patient, we measure it again, we have to know, is it actually improving or not? We cannot just rely on the patient. And I tell you why, tell, tell you the story of my sister. I think my sister slowly becomes famous. <laughs> <But> <laughs> My sister went to Norway on holiday, and as she goes to to Norway with her family uh, for hiking, uh, she gives me a call after one week, and she says, yes, this terrible kind of radiating leg pain. Um, it's a bit difficult, right? I have her on the phone. I ask her, can you still step on your toes, on your heels, kind of try to do, you know, kind of a, a broad neurological examination, ask her husband to kind of see whether she can still feel normally, and that seemed to be okay. But she had this terrible pain down her leg. And um, so I told her, why not you see whether you can find a doctor somewhere just to get some medication, you know, but it seems like the nerve at the moment seems quite quiet in that regard. Um, it still sends the pulses. So for the next two weeks, haven't heard from my sister, couldn't reach her because she was on holiday and had her cell phone off. Two weeks later, she gives me another call and says, oh, it's fantastic. I didn't even have to go and see a doctor. The pain actually just disappeared. I have absolutely no pain anymore uh, in my leg. Probably a bit of a leftover in the back, but nothing in my leg. But what I noticed lately is that when I walk, I actually trip over my, my foot um, quite often, um, which I didn't have before. So my sister had this amazing recovery of symptoms. And we might think, wow, perfect, yeah? So this person is going the right direction. But in fact, what she had is she started to develop these hard neurological signs. Um, and she had actually frank kind of, of um, muscle weakness in her, in her foot. And uh, this is not a good sign, yeah? Even if the patient, for, like for her, she, she was recovering uh, symptomatically. Um, so we, can't, we cannot just rely on the patient's reports. We have to quantify deficits and we have to reassess them again, because if it gets worse like that, we certainly have to react. I'm very passionate that we quantify our neurological examination, not only the motor signs, but also the sensory signs, because then we can, in fact, really decide, will we continue treating this patient 
or is this progressively getting worse and we indeed have to send them um, for surgical opinion, for example? Absolutely. So we've talked a little bit about what happens at the at the interface with regards to, um, well, I mean, we've gone into the, the, the physiology. What I, what I wonder, though, is how does that then respond? We've not talked, we're not going to necessarily talk about specific treatments just yet. I think we'll get there. But just how does it respond in, in time to recovery then? Is the, is the, is the, is the process of, of worsening when that, when that gets, um, when the corner gets turned, shall we say, and it starts to recover through whatever means we've managed to do. Let's just argue in this case, it gets decompressed. And when we change the, um, the issue there, what might be the trajectory of recovery? And, you know, this is probably, even though we are pronostically very bad preoperatively, actually the first couple of months after surgery give a really good indication about um, a potential prognosis. If you have a, a, a pure demyelinating, or let's say even easier, a pure ischemic condition, yeah? Sometimes that happens in carpal tunnel patients. They operate them and they say, indeed, immediately after operation, everything was completely gone. This has nothing to do with demyelination, inflammation, axon degeneration. This is a pure ischemia that has been resolved very quickly um, with the surgery. Um, this obviously has an incredibly good prognosis. Um, if you have a patient, let's say he, he kind of still has some symptoms, but within the first two months, he has quite a good recovery for symptoms. His sensation gets better. He can feel more. Um, his, um, his muscle strength gets better. That is most likely due to remyelination, um, because axon regeneration is indeed much slower than the two months, um, depending on the distance. But um, demyelination usually happens within, in animal modeling, within about two weeks. If the demyelination has been there quite chronically, remyelination can be a bit slower. But it happens, and it happens rather well and rather complete after, after a few weeks. Now, this is why when we test these patients, let's say carpal tunnel patients, and we, we redo the nerve conduction tests, the speed of, 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 um, of the nerve conduction gets much faster, and that is remyelination. The problem comes when there was axon degeneration, and then after two months, um, patients are still not much better. Then that probably means you're in for the long haul with things, really. Um, we do know, and you're right, it's, it's about one millimeter a day, actually. So it's, it's actually quite amazing regeneration of axons. Um, we know that from animal models, and we also know that from kind of traumatic nerve injury models in hands, for example, that if you have a complete cut of a nerve, the nerve regenerates approximately one to two millimeter a day. The problem with axon regeneration is um, that it depends on several factors. So the, the health of the nervous system, obviously. So in patients with diabetes, axon regeneration is, is worse um, than in healthy people. If the epineurium is still intact, which it thankfully usually is in, in or it is in entrapment neuropathies, then axon regeneration is better. Um, but what quite often happens is that the axons have difficulties re-innovating the target. So for example, re-innovating the muscle at the end plate or re-innovating um, the skin uh, in, in, in the correct um, organs, etc. Um, so even though you have axon regeneration, it doesn't necessarily mean that they reach their target tissue. And that is why sometimes 
um, you know, neurologists have this kind of two years rule, which is a bit arbitrary, but basically from a pure kind of like rate of regeneration, you would expect that even regeneration from up, up high up the plexus in, in lumbar plexus down to the foot should happen within two years. If it is not better after two years, it's probably such that it hasn't found the target tissue, if that makes sense. And this is why this kind of a bit arbitrary rule of, you know, if if after two years nothing or what hasn't changed within two years is probably difficult to change further. That's where it originally came from. I, I would just say that maybe the, the most important time frame is the first two or so months after a surgery. And if there is a nice recovering during that time, the prognosis is usually better as compared to if there is absolutely no recovery of, of, of the heart neurological signs within that time. Sure. We start to get some great clues after that. that, that that's uh, that's really helpful. I think we will, I'm going to try and talk about a few different, probably rattle them off later on. We'll talk about the different treatment modalities that we have for these common um interfaces at, at, at the you know we'll probably touch on injections as well uh, if we can but um one, one of the questions i wanted to try and go towards because i think it'll open uh, a few few other sub questions really is that i thought you made a what you called a pledge for the periphery which i quite liked i like catchy cheesy slogans that's good we're, we're full of them uh, was this in response to some feeling that we're getting too cns centric you know is there is there is that your or am I uh, am I trying to put words in your mouth? No, no, I think that is exactly part of it. And you know, we have made immense advances in in the understanding of the central nervous system, kind of contribution um, to peripheral problems as well. And this is incredibly important. That by no means do I want to weaken this progress or, or or say it's not important. It's absolutely important that we do have this progress and that we do understand these mechanisms in detail. What I just find very surprising is that in physiotherapy, but to be honest as well in other medical professions, but, but it seems we are quite um, prone to these things, is that we always have trends, right? We have yeah. the SIJ for a while and then everything is a fascia problem. <laughs> central nervous system is quite topical at the moment and it's good because it has shown us a lot of things that we probably neglected over the last 10-15 years but it's it also is important to remember that the peripheral nervous system and the central nervous system are completely linked you cannot anatomically nor physiologically separate those two systems and that is why we cannot forget the peripheral nervous system, even if we get excited about the central nervous system, if that makes sense. And maybe I want to, because I mean, I, I could probably talk about that for another two hours, but I just want to make uh, some examples why I think you shouldn't forget the peripheral. Um, so there's certainly a lot of conditions and certainly entrapment neuropathies is one of them where a peripheral trigger is absolutely the, the kind of starting point and this peripheral trigger usually leads to abnormal pulses that are generated within, within the peripheral nervous system that reaches the central nervous system. And it's logical that the central nervous system will react. I'm surprised that people are surprised <laughs> that the central nervous system reacts. Of course it has to react if there is abnormal impulses coming from the central nervous system. Um, it would in fact be abnormal if the central nervous system wouldn't react. 
So there are all these studies coming out now that they say, oh, we find central mechanisms in knee osteoarthritis, hip osteoarthritis, um, Achilles tendinopathy, shoulder problem. Well, yeah, of course, <laughs> because the central nervous system will react if there is abnormal peripheral input. Sure. Um, there is more and more evidence that shows that if you remove a peripheral trigger, that the central changes will automatically resolve. And we know that from patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, we know they have quite often widespread symptoms that are attributed to kind of central system, uh, central hyperexcitability. You, you give them cortisone injection locally into the tunnel and these symptoms completely disappear. You operate them locally and these kind of central hypersensitivity completely disappears. We know you have a patient with a hip osteoarthritis, for example. Um, it has been shown that they even have atrophy of the thalamus when you do, when you do MRI. Yeah. And you, know, you operate them and it completely normalizes. Even the, the structural atrophy of the thalamus in, the, in higher cortical areas, it will disappear. Mm -hmm. If you can remove the peripheral trigger, now, the debate of the question really is, do we know that there is still a peripheral trigger? And if we think there is no peripheral trigger, is there no peripheral trigger because indeed there is no peripheral trigger or because our methods are not good enough to find the peripheral trigger? Um, and I guess there's a lot of literature coming out um, now in, in, in kind of pain research that shows, you know, fibromyalgia might still have peripheral kind of um, 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 hypersensitivity in the peripheral nervous system going on. There's a lot of things coming now that I think is an exciting development and that might eventually tell us that, you know, maybe our methods were not good enough to show peripheral changes. And maybe it is not as such that the central nervous system is so independently firing, but in fact, the peripheral nervous system has still ingoing input, which which would naturally which would make naturally make us revisit some real key seminal papers and, and and studies on these things. Where if if we need to if we were to revisit, actually there was more going on than was measured. Then some of the conclusions that were then made and the uh, body of like you said the trend that then perpetuated might need to be reassessed and reevaluated, which is, is only good science, of course. You know, I, I don't want to be the physio standing there in 15, 20 years and having to apologize to quite many patients of mine because I didn't, you know, I, I told them it, there's nothing in the periphery. But on the other side, you know, at the moment we have a lot of conditions, especially that we see in physiotherapy, where with the current methods that we have, we cannot find a peripheral trigger. And in those cases, and that is still fibromyalgia, that is still a lot of chronic pain conditions, uh, chronic low back pains, etc., etc. By all means, the best bet we have at the moment is to treat them with what we think are more treatments targeted at the central nervous system. And that is what we have to do at the moment. But that doesn't mean we should stop looking for mechanisms that might still be there um, because we have that knowledge of what happens in the central nervous system. Sure, no, that makes sense. Now, the the... I mean, I think we'll probably, I'm, I'm ever more tempted to have a, a podcast on sort of 
with with a couple of guests that might have different opinions on the old top down bottom up style questions not that there's not that that's a um a binary split don't get me wrong uh, i just mean that those those mechanisms could be discussed over and over couldn't they so we won't have time to do that today um and, I, and I, perhaps i'll call on you to to be involved in that if you if you're interested it could be quite interesting, actually. I mean, there's a, probably a lot of other people as well that would have a lot more to say than me. Um, in, in you know, in those kind of big, big pain conferences, most of the time they actually do have a debate nowadays. And and just to strengthen my position, the pendulum definitely have swung towards the periphery again. Um, in in the past four or so years. Right. No, that's really interesting, and 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 uh, certainly you you have to point me in the direction of uh, for my own learning as well, and the listeners, if if you've got any particular um interesting interesting conversations you can direct us towards or researchers in that field. I think what what I would want to touch on though is that you you you've recognised in in previous answers the fact that the way that the central nervous system might influence the let's just go on the myelination even the demyelination remyelination process would be interfered with by the way in which the wellness the general wellness of that person the the quality of their sleep for example we we know as a as a plays a part we know that stress would play a part in that we know that therefore someone's psychological well-being would be intimately linked to both of those things i mentioned and i'm not going to give an exhaustive list but all of the features we've already talked about could be at least interfered with, although not causal to the process that we've talked about. Is that is that fair enough or am I misspeaking? No, that is absolutely, absolutely correct. And these kind of things have to be taken into consideration. And some of them we might be able to address and some of them we as physio might not be the, the right person to address absolutely mm-hmm. okay yeah so i mean as ever it's a bit of both but you've made a great a great case there and, and certainly lived up to the title that you gave it which is the pledge for the periphery you've certainly made a good one i've got a lot to think about and a lot of reading to do but I've, certainly i can recognize the pendulum swinging personally myself and i'm far from immune to these trends and uh, and, and feel guilty sometimes for when i look back over some of our other work that i didn't push hard enough on certain certain questions or assumptions and then equally um i've i've uh, we, we all have our own biases so you, you've made a great case there and there's a lot of thinking to do what i wanted to talk about then i said we'd get to it is that how does this new understanding we've talked now for an hour about a new understanding of these things or at least to most clinicians uh, i know it is to me so i hope to most clinicians or i'm being left behind uh, by the listeners that this is this is this is edgy stuff so how does it influence and change practice so we've talked about how it influences the assessment even the reasoning process but i'd like to talk to you a little bit about imaging and the natural sort of um, nerve conduction studies and what that how it how it might change our timing as well as our pursuit of the um the other uh, lab tests that we might get yeah yeah so for imaging i would suggest let's let's say electrodiagnostic tests first um electrodiagnostic tests are rather good in diagnosing, for example, carpal tunnel syndrome, ulnar neuropathy at the elbow, the more kind of peripheral kind of entrapment neuropathies. They are not very useful for radiculopathy, so I would not send a patient to um, uh, EMG or electrodiagnostics uh, who has a suspected radiculopathy. Um, when would I send a patient? I believe 
for my conservative treatment, it's absolutely not necessary to have an electrodiagnostic test done. I would send patients for electrodiagnostics if it is a very unclear diagnosis. Um, or um, quite often surgeons want to have the electrodiagnostic tests before they operate. And I personally believe that is a good reason uh, or a, a good idea to have that simply as well, because something can go wrong um, during surgery and it's good to n know the health of the nerve before. So to have a baseline then, is that yeah. it? So, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. But for conservative management, you definitely would not need an electrodiagnostic test if you have a clear kind of, of pattern um, of symptoms and signs that fit your diagnosis. For imaging, uh, I feel quite the same way, actually, um, especially because we all know that there's a lot of um, false positives in, in MRI, for example, especially with radiculopathies or, or like, like disc problems. Um, uh, for MRI, if, if you follow the North, North American Spine Society guidelines, what they recommend is that MRI are useful um, to determine the level of radiculopathy. And that is specifically then important if you send these patients for injection. So before you send a patient for injection, I think it's a good idea to have um, uh, an MRI done to be sure about the level. Because sometimes... Um, level determination with our clinical tests can, is sometimes not as good. Um, I also believe that MRI is crucial before somebody is being sent to surgery. Okay, no, that that makes sense, and and I think that that's I think that probably is still the the common use of or the best use of imaging um, outside of the natural reassurograms that 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 uh, <laughs> compel us towards a, that style of thinking sometimes. But generally speaking, I think that that. To understand whether there is a, a, a significant surgical target or before an intervention, it would be useful. Um, so Absolutely. certainly spinally injections and surgery yeah. um, to, to be looking at the extent of any compressive lesion. So that, that sort of makes sense. And also, we've got to admit as well, and it's not something we've touched on, but I know that you're passionate about um, from hearing you speak before, is that these we, we're discussing the fact that we've got a compressive uh, space occupying lesion and to make sure that we're clearing the fact that this might not be the most common um, issue you know we can make assumptions on it being a disc when it could be something more sinister and so to get some imaging if you've got any raised eyebrows uh, coming from your assessment or it's not fitting well within typical patterns then certainly investigating for that would be a reason that you might not think this is got a hard neuro that might be sending you straight to a surgeon but if you've got any features that might think that this is a space occupying lesion of a more sinister origin get it looked at i i'm I right to uh, sort of make that point absolutely if the pattern doesn't fit and you you spec some like masqueraders or in anything like that certainly certainly you need to go into imaging yeah cool no that makes sense so then to then to so with assessment we've gone reasoning we've gone imaging and we've and we're changing all of those things and using the new science to influence that but then when it comes to treatment i feel that that, that is where it really does start to 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 change things what is the, let's go for some of the common stuff then, the carpal tunnels, your radiculopathies um, of the neck and arm, uh, neck and arm and then your, your back sciatica. What's the, where are we at with how we understand how exercise affects things and, and how might we be, be doing that? I know you've done a trial recently, carpal, well, relatively recently with carpal tunnel about, because certainly it seems to be one or the other really, where people would do that needs to be exercised or that needs to be splintered and obviously there's also the option of a bit of both. So where are we at with what's the best care for these uh, entrapment neuropathy? 
Okay, so, so let's start with a couple of colors. So generally we do know that splinting, and uh, we know that from, from high-quality Cochrane review, splinting is beneficial for these patients. However, splinting is recommended only at night, so certainly not during the day, because yeah. you actually want to get them moving during the day. Um, we know infections are very, very uh, useful in these patients. However, after about three months on average, um, um, the symptoms usually come back. So quite often, um, the patients don't have long-lasting effects from injections. And, and obviously, it's highly successful. Um, in about 85% of patients, they have um, a complete pain relief from surgery. So we, we know these things. Now, we, we know a bit less if it comes to our kind of treatment in physiotherapy. And, and obviously, what has been looked at a lot is, is neurodynamics. Um, there are a few studies out there, so not a lot of um, really high-quality trials, unfortunately, in patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, some of these trials show some benefits, some show that they have no added benefit to, for example, doing splinting or injection. Um, so there's not a lot of evidence, but it's also not very high-quality evidence at the moment. But we have done is more looking at the pathomechanisms. Can we influence with active kind of nerve gliding exercises or tendon gliding exercises? Can we influence, for example, intraneural edema? And we have found that within one week of quite regular kind of one hourly, one minute, uh, one minute of um, nerve and tendon gliding exercises, we could in fact reduce intraneural swelling as measured on magnetic resonance imaging in patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, um, whether we do splinting or whether we exercise them. So you might well ar argue that it might be beneficial, you know, to, to not just splint or not just um, um, exercise, but to probably combine them. But unfortunately, we don't have good um, efficacy trials that, that actually show that this is indeed the case. Is it worthwhile injecting these patients then, or is that just going to be almost like scratching an itch when it could be deleterious in the long term? If we think that that demyelination process might be going on, are we just giving symptomatic relief that might then postpone a helpful surgical procedure? Um, I, 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 I have to answer that. What would I do if that was my hand with the carpal tunnel syndrome? I would do an injection for two reasons. Uh, in my hand if I had one. Obviously, if if conservative management fails, I would first go for an injection before I would do surgery for the simple reason that if the injection doesn't do nothing at all, I want to be sure that they are not missing something else before they cut my hand open. Um, so almost like a diagnostic kind of injection. Right, right. Um, uh, but um, we also know that some patients who have injection are cured and it doesn't come back. So you might well be one of the lucky ones. There are not very many, but there is a slight chance. And it's certainly less invasive than doing a surgery. Um, so I think there is still a reason to inject. I personally think injection could provide quite a nice window during which you could adjust certain other things. So, for example, you could try and, and improve um, swelling by, for example, training your hand, active exercises. You could start preventing, you know, certain sleep patterns that increase the pressure on the nerve, like um, like curled up wrist positions, etc. So an injection might provide quite a nice therapeutic window. But once again, it has never been looked at. So there is not a single study that looks at 
Um, does it add something to actually inject and then do physiotherapy management while you have that therapeutic window? So certainly something that needs to be done. Yeah, it's not uh, not something that is, we can't make conclusions based on a wide variety of different trials in which different interventions have been pitched against each other and in combination. You know, it's still very young field of study from what I understand. Absolutely. Okay. How important is neuropathic medication as part of this workup? And uh, if so, which ones? Um, so, so certainly, you know, sometimes you see patients that come to you, they have a frank radiculopathy loss of function and they're in soaring pain and all they have been given is um, paracetamol, probably codamol, um, and, and, and it certainly doesn't help their pain. Mm -hmm. So when I was talking in the very beginning of the, uh, of the podcast about the mixed pain presentation, nociceptive or neuropathic symptoms, if patients have proper neuropathic symptoms, it'd be really important to give them medications that actually target neuropathic pain mechanisms. And into that kind of category definitely falls like Lyrica or Gabapentin. Um, could also be something more like amitriptyline, um, but certainly not just the paracetamol. So I will always, always ask my patients, um, what kind of medications do they have and do they help? Um, their pain or do they not help their pain that gives me a good indication about what potential mechanisms might be going on but also about whether they are actually um, well covered um, on, on drugs because it's incredibly important that these patients um, have have pain medication that helps them as, and, and would you say that's a matter of priority as well in terms of timing so there's a, I know a case gets made, and, and I try to make it too, where if someone has a, neuropath a neuropathic pain presentation that is, well, apart from the rare occasions in which it's kind of a small irritation, it's not really affecting their function, generally speaking, I'd say as a matter of, of, of somewhat some urgency, they should be on some neuropathic medication to try and decrease that sensitivity. Absolutely, absolutely, because you do not want to have so much abnormal input into the central nervous system. So, yeah, this is a question that I will ask on the first examination. And if I feel they are not sufficiently covered pharm pharmacologically, then I will send them back with, to their GP with, with the query for potential more neuropathic pain-related medications. And, and so then to... Um... <laughs> I suppose I just want to linger on timing for surgery. Um, and although we can, I don't want it just to be about carpal tunnel, of course, but just if we think about that, that demyelination process, it just feels like there could be a, a leaning, partly contributed to by this uh, pursuit of, of central processes being attributed as the, the whole, whole picture, but the a movement towards exhausting conservative options at the expense of, of time passing. And the more time yeah. passes, as prognosis worsens, I sometimes yeah. get concerned about the idea that we might delay surgical procedures excessively yeah. in patients that aren't responding well to care. Surgical timing, have you any sort of t positions yeah. on that, especially spinally, if you don't mind? Exactly. I think spinally, it's much more important because carpal tunnel syndrome is very slowly progressing problem. Uh, so, so it's not quite comparable. Spinally, uh, I would certainly say you're absolutely right. Um, in, in We sh should not linger around too much if somebody has hard neurological signs that are progressing. So even if they are progressing um, like from one 
appointment to the other, I would already um, contact a GP and saying this is what happens. If it is very severely progressing, this is an A and E kind kind of decision um, for immediate follow up. Um, if uh, a heart neurological deficit is there, but has already been there, let's say, for the past two years. The patient comes to me. I will not send them immediately um, to surgical opinion, but I will treat them for a few times. If we see it's not getting worse, um, but it's getting better, for example, then I will certainly keep on treating them. If, if it's not getting worse, but it's also not getting any better, then I will send them the query um, surgery, although the prognosis for somebody with long-standing long heart neurological signs might not be as good anymore. But the ones that we definitely want to pick and want to pick quickly are the ones that are worsening, um, newly worsening and, and quite suddenly worsening. These are the ones that we immediately have to send on. No, that makes sense. Now, there's there's this awkward middle ground, isn't there? And I've got a very personal story that I'm going to probably share. I've promised to share with the listeners once I'm completely better. But I've been through this process with um, entrapment neuropathy myself in the last 12 months. And just without exhausting my case, I feel it, it's it's helpful to mention that it's when someone was to, if someone was to plateau at a point in which there was no progress on the hard neuro and the symptomatic side of things then that might be another indication um would the would the timing be very influential um with regards to how long someone has had an entrapment neuropathy yeah prognostically you mean um yeah yeah. so so it's like when someone Mm -hmm. i suppose just to just to give a bit more context if someone was to have improvements over the course of a three-month period and then was to plateau at that point in which, say, they were only, say, 50% better, both in terms of their neurological response and uh, objectively and their subjective sort of um, issues, despite exhaustion of medication and mm. uh, physiotherapy mm. care, is, yeah. is that then, right, if they've plateaued at that point, let's get that operated on ASAP, or is it sensible to still leave that a longer period of time to see if it then re-engages with recovery? That probably it is dependent on a, on a few factors. If it is you, your age, that is something that I would more quickly refer to a surgical opinion. Mm-hmm. If it is an 80, 85-year-old woman who is not bothered by the neurological deficit as much, where we also have um, certain risk factors for surgery that, okay. that yeah. are difficult, then this is probably a different story. Um, but especially if you have young people, right, and they have, if you say 50%, that is quite a significant neurological deficit I would not give it too much time I personally think we can be too conservative as well with this kind of problems um, I personally wouldn't give it too much time no there's yeah. a, I think that and that's a that's a sensible middle ground isn't it but I think strangely I've noticed it in our on our medical colleagues in which you've got um, sometimes very scalpel happy orthopedic spinal surgeons who, yeah. who want to correct deficits because of their natural mechanistic reasoning propensities. Although I've, I don't mean to tar everyone with that brush, but that seems to be what I've encountered both um, with, with my patients and also personally, but then neurosurgeons can be sometimes so conservative to the point in which you're surprised at the fact that they don't want to act on things. They'd much rather suck it and see even in presence of, of quite disabling symptoms and 
frank neurological deficits have you have you noticed sort of I, I, I'm, I'm thinking out loud a little bit but is that something you might have noticed amongst our medical colleagues too definitely and you know i think it is this problem is probably twofold one of it is obviously surgery has quite bad reputation and i think rightly so in some conditions like you know chronic unspecific low back pain is, is not the thing to operate we all sure, know that sure, sure. Um, but patients with a, with a proper radiculopathy and neurological sign is just a completely different story, really. The, the other point, um, what might influence that as well, um, is, you know, we know that natural history of these conditions is, is usually self-limiting. Um, but it is not self-limiting if it is progressing. So that is something that should not be missed. It can be self-limiting, um, but you need to see changes. And if you don't see changes for a few weeks, um, I would certainly not hesitate to go and get surgical opinion. And I, I would also think it makes sense to then operate, especially if you have, especially with motor signs, because that will that will certainly then impair um, like quality of life and function. Oh, yeah, I think that's what what I would um, I've had a personal um, I mean sorry this is independent of my own sort of journey with with what I've had going on because I, I keep leaning towards it but there's a big story to tell that I will go on I promise the listeners uh, and if you want to tune in of course Nina then you might hear my, mm-hmm. my tale in full um, but yes. but generally be, before that um, I have a, I've had a, a, a sense of discomfort over this notion that in absence of hard neuro then that then a radiculopathy of upper or lower limb would be then lumped in with non-specific chronic low back pain um is a real it's been a real point of discomfort for me um because a movement away from structural diagnoses whilst i understand it in certain conditions and the and we we touched on it before this idea of non-specific pain areas and things now that we understand pain a little better um I get it in certain certain areas, and I think it's valid in certain areas. But I'm I'm certainly concerned over people being um, tarred with a with a very broad brush and lumped in with a a group that just doesn't suit their presentation. Uh, again, I'm thinking out loud. Is that something that you share, or am I am I unfairly worrying? No, no, I completely share that. And and the the question is as well, you know, what what is the neurological examination that has been done? Was it properly looking at the small fibers, for example? I I know from from patients with carpal tunnel syndrome, it's about 10% of patients who have completely normal electrodiagnostics, completely normal light touch, completely normal strength. But if you operate them, it disappears. Because they have, indeed, they have a problem in the carpal tunnel, um, but they don't show with large fiber deficits. And I, I, I totally agree that our, our neurological examination might not be sensitive enough to pick up everything, especially if we are not looking for the small fibers. We should always be looking for the small fibers as well. Um, but certainly, we will be missing patients um, um, that might well benefit um, potentially from a surgery. And I completely, completely share a bit that discomfort with you of, um, you know, what, what do we or do we not operate and how do we make that decision? And um, to be honest, because the evidence is so bad at the moment, all we can rely on is, is basically the, search, the surgeon's kind of decision, which can be quite different from surgeon to surgeon as of well. Of course, no, no, and, and some some consensus that we can get together with, um, you know, across disciplines, and, and certainly 
between researchers, clinicians and bridging that gap, which is, of course, what we try and do as much as possible, is really important because to, to have a, a sensible middle ground message will, will, that is consistent um, it will, will be vital. For the sake of balance, I suppose what we're, what we're lingering on at this point, which brings us into uh, potentially an, an, a, another podcast, as I mentioned, with regards to pain mechanisms, but we're talking about the how relevant is what's going on at the interface. Is that a fair enough sort of summary for me? Is like there's there's different schools of thought about the relevance of a lesion and what's going on peripherally. And mm-hmm. whilst the the jury remains out, absolute ignorance of that is is unhelpful. But also suggestion that that's the whole shot is also quite archaic thinking. So middle ground for the win. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've uh, I, I, to, to try and summarise so so um, so closely is probably unfair of what has been an incredibly enlightening conversation that I unfortunately have to bring to an end. Just looking at the clock and uh, our, our listeners' patience, uh, certainly for my voice, but I know they'd want to hear more from you. If they were to want to delve more into into your work, where would they best find more from you? No, we usually try and make our, our publications open access as much as we can. Um, so if you look at PubMed quite often, you can find the articles. And obviously, if, if something is not open access, I'm quite happy, happy to be contacted um, um, on, on email. You're very um, which, generous on ResearchGate as well. I know you have a ResearchGate yeah. page that we can link people to. Yeah, absolutely. And and we are also quite like, actually, one thing that probably might be of interest if people want to hear a bit more about it, we have this quite exciting course coming up again next year, which we already did as a pre-conference course at iFont together with Colette Reithalsch and Brigitte Sampin and myself. So three people who do quite a lot of clinics, but also um, research in, in the area of entrapment neuropathies, um, will be giving another two-day course for the MACP next year. So there we certainly will hopefully be able to answer a few more outstanding questions and, and, and give the latest kind of research as well. And you have recently um, gone on to Twitter, which is, uh, which is <laughs> a, a exciting, exciting new ground you're treading. So how do people find you on Twitter? If I would even know my, my Twitter name, I'm a terribly passive tweeter, I have to say. You're, you're a lurker. <laughs> you put in my name, you probably... Is it like Anina B. Mead or something like that? I'll find, I'll find it and, uh, and mention it in the outro. That's not a problem. Yeah, I'll, I'll, hunt, I'll hunt that down. But but typically, typically uh, the fact that you, you, you're so bad at self-promotion, it seems, is, is just testament to just how humble you are about these things. And, and I really value... Uh, trying to scrape around in in your mind in this conversation it's been absolutely fantastic and fascinating Uh, as ever we leave with more questions and answers but you've really helped to clarify where where we're at with this very complex topic so i really appreciate your time for us today thank you so much thank you so much and keep the good work it's really important for physiotherapists to have this platform as well yeah thank you very much you're too kind and uh, we'll speak soon thank you And that was session 36. Thanks so much to Nina. Um, I told you it was good. I mean, I'm biased, but blimey. Um, Certainly not. You you think people get a bit frustrated when we do a longer episode, but I hope you can understand. I'm not going to trim this down, just as I wasn't going to trim the Toby Smith thing down. If you need to listen to it in five chunks, so be it. But yeah, we we don't want to cut these people short. Incredible um, 
knowledge that they've got to share and, and it, hopefully you can sense the clinical applicability straight off it uh, in fact i should just let them let them go i don't know how much my use my questions even are um so i should just give them a, give them the mic and shut the hell up but i uh, i do poke and probe so i hope you don't mind me interfering um one thing one thing is worth mentioning having listened to this back uh, and and tried my best to learn as much as i can over and over when i do listen to these things i noticed that some um we some criticism we get is, is people people want the want a, a blow by blow breakthrough of exactly what she would do with each of these conditions like we we point towards physiotherapy care what does that mean and um really i, I just the more i speak to people that that think this way um as in more people that think like nina does like they're not gonna when I go on these courses, they don't teach in a sense that, that recipes anything. It's not, this is what I would do with this patient. If you understand the mechanisms and then you recognize the, the reasoning process that goes on, then that, that bit is up to you. That, that is about you translating that in the clinical, into clinical practice. And, and I hope there's plenty to go on here. But if you happen to be one of those people that, that listens to this and says, well, that just felt like the preamble until you tell us exactly what we should be doing with sciatica patients or with neck and arm pain patients or with carpal tunnel patients then i want you to reach out and let us know um because we want to hear from you we want to hear if there's a group of our listeners that are are frustrated with these sorts of podcasts and and want more um sort of blow by blow accounts of exactly what you should be doing because we're clearly failing to make a persuasive case for this style of learning um and we don't want to be failing you but equally we we feel like we would also be alienating other people that want to want to hear this stuff um and and then extrapolate themselves um so we tend to go this way we did it in certainly the last two podcasts so please do reach out we we really value your feedback and we especially value it if you're not liking what we're doing um or if you listen to half of it Uh, you might not have got to this bit of course um but if you feel like you hear from colleagues that that have stopped listening or or don't enjoy certain episodes then try and get them to reach out to us and and say hello and tell us what we're doing wrong because we really want to hear that we want to critique ourselves too so i said i wouldn't ramble on the outro and here i am doing it um so spectacular lady please reach out to her she's on twitter anina b schmid she was right she did remember a twitter handle in the end um follow us on facebook on twitter um join our newsletter we'll send you out some of anina, some of anina's um literature um check us out on youtube we, we're doing all sorts of stuff especially in december we're going to pretty much you're going to get some content most days or at least a reminder of some old content most days in december so keep an eye on social media and then over the holiday period if you're wanting to tap into any bits of cpd and we'll try and keep it as entertaining as we usually do uh, if you're hungry for some knowledge over the holiday period we will feed you i promise you that so keep an eye on our social media for what we're doing many thanks to the physio matters team as ever and we will see you next year. One thing, I've not been getting the guests to do this bit. I think I'm hogging it. It's, it's accidental, but maybe it's subconscious because I love doing it. So uh, you get me for the, the favorite bit of saying that you've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing Physio Matters because Physio matters. Matters. <laughs>